Good morning. Hey, before we dive into the Scripture and the message, um, there's a picture that captured my attention. Rhonda, I don't know if you can throw that one up of the Ukrainian Christians. Um, but I, I saw this particular image of some of the believers in Ukraine who are kneeling down in the snow fasting today for God to intervene in this world situation. And I thought, how about if we join them and just pray for God's hand to intervene and for uh, peace and cooler heads in Ukraine and Russia this morning. Father God, we lift up our hands to you and we join with these Christians around the globe who are concerned and maybe even afraid of what might happen as uh, Russian troops are massed along the borders of Ukraine and these people are crying for freedom, Lord, and they're crying out for you to, to stop what appears to be uh, something that will rob them of their freedom and that would place great restrictions on them as Christians and also as a society. As we ask that somehow, some way you would intervene, whether through diplomacy or some other event, we don't know how it will happen, but we've just sung about how your ways are better. Whatever your way is of staving off this crisis, we pray that you would do that. And we join with those who are calling on your name from around the world and other places. We ask that you would hear their prayers and that your will would be worked out. We pray for peace in our world, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for doing that with me. This morning we're going to read from Judges chapter 6. We're continuing on, on the second week of this series where we're looking at ordinary people who've had extraordinary results as God has worked in their lives. And we're going to look at the life of Gideon. And so these first 16 verses of Judges chapter 6 introduces us to the, uh, to the ministry and the life of Gideon. Verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They, tore up their, with their live, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Obed the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? 
But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Let's pray for a moment. God, there are times when we feel weak. We look at the world problems. We look at things that are going on in our own nation or even in our own communities. And we seem so inadequate in our own strength to bring change, to solve large problems. And so we call on you. We recognize that you are able to do amazing things in us, through us, around us. And when we hand over the reins to you and submit to your way and your leadership, it is amazing how you turn things around. It is amazing how you do great things through surprising people, even like us. So, Lord, we want to surrender to you. We want to acknowledge that you are great. We've come here to worship you. You are the the creator God. You know more about what's going on in this world and what your plans are for the future. And even when we don't understand, we recognize that you are at work behind the scenes, moving pieces around, preparing for the future. And we ask that you would continue to do that. Start in our lives. Start with the way that you, you move us and change us and the way that you work inside our minds and our hearts and our consciences, that we would become the people that you want us to be and therefore that we'd be ready when the time is right to move in the way you want us to move, to work in the way that you want us to work, to love in the way that you want us to love. Guide us this morning as we look into this Old Testament passage about Gideon. Show us once again how the ways that you have moved in the past become so relevant to the way that you may be moving again in the present. Guide us in this time. We pray that you would work beyond the the way that we see and understand or can manipulate We pray for those who have silent requests where they've been asking for your strength, for your healing, for a solution that only you can provide. We pray for those who are in the hospital or those who are recovering from injury or going through great turmoil today. And we ask that you would give them strength. We ask that you would give them hope. We ask that as we reach out, that you would also impart your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you were familiar with the ministry of Stuart Briscoe, but Stuart Briscoe, who was a minister for a long time in Wisconsin, used to tell the story of a farmer who was walking along the road with his horse and his dog, and a pickup truck came racing by and knocked them all off the road and into a ditch. So the farmer sued for damages, including the loss of work time, a broken leg, facial injuries, and several cracked ribs that had kept him bedridden. When the trial came, the defense attorney told the judge, Your Honor, shortly after the accident, my client heard the farmer say that he had never felt better in his life. I don't know why he's bringing a suit against my my client. And so when it was his turn, the farmer explained to the judge, Yes, Your Honor, that is exactly what I said, but let me explain why I said that. After the defendant ran my dog, my horse, and me off the road, we were lying there in the ditch. 
the driver of the truck got out of his, his, his vehicle, and seeing that my horse had a broken leg, he took out his shotgun, and he shot my horse to put him out of his misery. Then noticing that my dog was bleeding and suffering terribly, he shot my dog. Then he stood over the top of my mangled body holding a gun, and he asked, how are you feeling? And I said, never better in my life. Today we're going to talk about another farmer who had some problems of his own. His name was Gideon. Today he's mostly remembered when people hear that Lennon-McCartney tune about Rocky Raccoon who checked into his room only to find the Gideon Bible. But Gideon started off as a very ordinary farmer who wasn't much of a big deal, yet became an extraordinary faith leader who has a lot to teach us about following God in the midst of a time when there is great cultural confusion. In our current series of messages, we're looking at ordinary people from the Bible era who had an extraordinary impact on their society and their time, even though the information may only involve a chapter or two of the Bible. My hope is that each one of these will present a value to uphold that we can see in a fresh way that ordinary people can have an extraordinary impact today when the Lord enters the equation. So let me welcome you here to North River today. I love being with our church family and when we gather together. Uh, for now, I realize that we are in two modes. There are some who are here with us to get to, together in the room, and there are some who are watching online. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. Thank you for making this a part of your routine and for staying involved and staying connected with us this way. I want to say hello to those of you who've moved away and who are watching from other states. We're glad that you are. But I hope that as things get better, you will begin to change your patterns again and come back because there is something that happens when we are together in the same room, praying together, seeing each other's faces, getting involved in each other's lives. And I hope that more and more that you will feel comfortable in coming back and joining us. This morning we're in part two of this Ordinary People, Extraordinary Impact series. And our theme today is the weakest in the clan. We're going to look at Gideon, who hears the Lord calling him and says, you don't know what you're doing, Lord. And I'm from the weakest of, of the, all the families in the tribe of Manasseh, and, and my family is the most insignificant of them all. Why would you call me to lead? And what we're looking at is, what can we learn from someone who led in a very troubled and messed up time? So our theme is, weakest in the clan, how God leads in times of decline. Here's what we learned. Step one, he imparts a renewed vision. Let me read for you just three verses from what we read a moment ago. Uh, Judges 6, verses 7 through 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This chapter begins by telling us that during the judges' period, Israel was in some really dark and confusing times. These were the days after the generation who had walked with Moses and Joshua had died off. And there was a pattern that we read about in the final chapter of the book of Judges. It says that, says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
This is code word for saying they didn't follow one universal set of rules or guidelines about right and wrong. Everybody decided for themselves what was right and what's wrong. It's kind of like the time we live in right now. And the result of this was that people were harassed and mistreated by the various tribes that were living around Israel. In this case, we're told at the beginning of chapter 6 in Judges that the Midianites mistreated them for seven years. They not only mistreated them, they waited until the harvest season would come, and then as the Israelite people were gathering in their harvest, they would sweep in, take the harvest, and destroy everything that they could not carry off. And so the Israelites were so beaten down that they were living in caves and holes and places like that. After a few years of this, the people would then remember, oh, our God is able to save us, and they would begin to cry out to God. They would get down on their knees like we saw these folks in Ukraine uh, just a moment ago. And when they cried out to God this time, God responded in two ways. First, he sent a prophet, and the prophet explained to Israel why they were in such deep trouble. The Lord God first reminded them of how he had rescued them in the past, that he had driven out all their oppressors under Joshua's leadership. And the Lord had also commanded them not to worship the God of the Amorites. You might wonder why that was thrown in, but the simple answer comes that they'd not listened. In other words, they'd begun to worship the idols of the nations around them. And when they did that, God took his blessing off the people. In sending this unnamed prophet, the Lord was going on record, specifically telling people why their times had become so messed up. And the answer was very simple. They turned their backs on God. And when they turned their backs on God, they worshipped anything and everything else. And God took His favor away from them and His protection away from them. The second way that God responded to that prayer was that He began to prepare the heart of a farmer named Gideon to lead them. The Lord God first reminded them of how He had rescued them in the past. He sent this prophet to speak for them, uh, speak for Him to the people. And then He began to work in Gideon's life, even though Gideon didn't see himself as a leader. The challenge was that Gideon saw himself as the least significant person in his clan. So verses 11 and 12 of that chapter have this amazing exchange. It says that the angel of the Lord, who represents the Lord directly, came down and sat under the oak tree in Oprah and, that belonged to Obed the, Obed the Abiezrite, who was Gideon's father. When his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press, we have to figure out what that's about, to keep it from the Midianites, then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So here's Gideon, minding his own business, trying to keep his family going. He's totally unprepared for this. Do you remember the old adage, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called? Well, Gideon is the poster child for this reality. Here's the scene that introduces Gideon. Remember, the Midianites and the Amalekites were oppressing Israel. They were living in caves and holes and hiding out. So Gideon, we are told, was threshing wheat in a wine press. That may not mean anything to you. It didn't mean anything to me too. But I was curious about what was going on. I'm not a farm boy. I've worked on a farm for a few Saturdays, but uh, had to dig back into some of the research to find out. And it turns out that Gideon was taking initiative, and this was his way of fighting against the oppression that had come. 
Threshing was the process of separating grain from the stalks. And so usually in those days it involved somebody beating the grain while it was on the ground. They'd get a rod and they would kind of soften it up and then they would throw the grain up in the air. And they would usually do this when the wind was behind the farmer and they'd light a fire on the other end of the field. And so when the wind would blow through, it would take the the stalks, the chaff, the lighter part, and it would blow in the wind toward the fire and the heavier parts of the wheat grains would fall to the ground. They would sweep those up and collect those. And meanwhile, they hoped that all of the chaff ended up in the bonfire that they created and it would be burned up. But if you did that in this particular time frame, When the Amalekites and the other tribes were looking to raid the crops, the fire would signal to them that somebody was on the threshing floor and the fire would draw the enemy and they would come and they would gather up all the grain and they'd carry it off. So Gideon figured out another process and he was using a wine press and he was trying to break up the grain so that he could separate it and he was trying to be sneaky in doing all this simply out of survival. And the Lord showed up, and he saw something in Gideon, and he called upon Gideon. I love this exchange. The angel of the Lord calls out, and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon kind of looks over his shoulder. Who are you talking about? Notice his response. He says, Pardon me? (laughs) He'll do this twice. Pardon me? Lord, do you know what you're talking about? Do you know who I am? Gideon is simply a farmer trying to bring in his harvest during a season of oppression. He's not a trained leader. He's not a military expert. But that is not how God saw things. Gideon still thought that the Lord had abandoned Israel. And so he calls him a second time, and a second time Gideon responds and says, pardon me. And we find this important exchange. Gideon offers his perspective on how he sees himself. He says, my clan is the weakest and I am the least. And the Lord offers his answer. I will be with you and you will strike down all of the Midianites. This is how God chose to work. He seeks to correct the vision of people by calling out their departure from his plan, and then he revealed what he saw in in Gideon as opposed to how Gideon saw himself. Gideon complained that he was the weakest in the clan, and the Lord parries more or less with saying, none of that matters. The only thing that matters, Gideon, is knowing this. I will be with you. When you face your enemies, when you face your darkest days, it is my strength that will carry you through. You need to know one thing and one thing alone, Gideon. I will be with you. So step one in this process of how God was preparing Gideon was to give him a renewed vision. He needed to see himself in the way that God saw him. And they also needed to realize that their problem wasn't that God had abandoned him abandoned them as a people, their problem was that they had abandoned God. And when they turned back toward God, things would begin to change. That leads to step two. Step two in the process that we discover in this chapter is removing our idols. Notice what happens a little bit farther. This is verse 25, 26, and 27. The Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Gideon had been called, but in no way was he ready to lead yet. And the Lord knew that. 
So Gideon asked for a sign this was, this, that this was really God who was talking to him through this angel. Gideon ended up preparing a goat as a sacrifice, and he followed the instructions given by laying out the goat meat and some unleavened bread on a large rock that was on the ground. And the angel came and took his staff, and he touched the rock. And when he touched the rock with that staff, fire ignited, and it burned up all of that offering, all of the meat, all of the unleavened bread, and it was burned up toward God as a sacrifice. And Gideon was struck with a sense of awe and fear because he realized that he had seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now this is something that we call a theophany, that God himself was showing up in a human form, or this time in an angelic form. God was representing himself by taking on, for a very short period of time, a visible form. And Gideon is blown away because he's in the presence of God, and he's, he's actually trembling with fear over all of this. But the Lord tells him not to fear, that, that he's going to use Gideon in a new way. And he did this to encourage and to embolden Gideon. But the Lord knew that Gideon needed something else before he would be ready to lead. This was the moment when the Lord confronted the idols in Gideon's life. He told Gideon to take one of his father's bulls and prepare it as a sacrifice. And then he told him to tear down his father's altar to Baal and his Asherah pole as well. So this tells you that this idolatry that had taken over the land of Israel had even swept into Gideon's household. And his father was an idol worshiper. He's a Jewish idol worshiper. And he said, I want you to go up on the hill where they have all of these altars set up to the idols of the nations around you. And I want you to chop down the altar. I want you to chop down your father's Asherah pole, build a new altar that's going to be dedicated to the Lord, take this animal and sacrifice on it, and then I want, to, want you to take the wood from the Asherah pole, in other words, the wood that was used for serving another idol, chop it up and use it as the fuel for the fire. And you're going to light this thing and you're going to burn a sacrifice. You know what happens when you sacrifice an animal and you've got it on the altar? It smells like your friend's steak barbecue when it's filters all the way through the neighborhood, and everybody else knows that you're barbecuing that night. That was part of the point of it. It would draw attention, and there was a sweet aroma that was lifting up to God. Well, all the neighbors would know it too, and you couldn't do this in secret. Through this bold act, the Lord began to work in Gideon. The neighbors in their village were irate that Gideon had taken this action of tearing down their altars and Gideon persisted because he knew that he'd had an experience where he met the living God, leaving no room for idols anymore in his life. There's a lesson here. God will not and cannot work with power in our lives until we get to work at tearing down our idols. You might say, wait a minute. We don't have idols. That's a relic of the past. That's back in Gideon's day. Not us. But we do have idols. Anything and anyone who gets in the way of putting God first becomes an idol for us. Our idol might be how we are viewed by society or by our neighbors or by our co-workers. And so we moderate our Christian faith in order to be palatable in everybody else's eyes. Well, that, that becomes an idol. An idol might be uh, the trappings of wealth and success. That becomes so important that that's paramount in our lives. That becomes an idol. Our idol might be anything that creates an addiction that we can't let, let go of. And if you want to see God use you powerfully, you and I have to act decisively like Gideon and tear down that altar, tear down that idol, and let the neighbors say whatever they will when they realize that the ways of the past have been thrown aside.
Here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. When the Lord is ready to use us to change the world, He will work on the hearts of His people first. When the, when the Lord wants to use us to change the world, He will change us first. In fact, He won't change the world without changing us first. So step one, he gives Gideon a renewed vision. Step two, he starts him in that process of removing the idols from his life. Here's step three. The Lord takes us through faith tests. He sends faith tests to Gideon. We move ahead to chapter seven for just a couple verses. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now Gideon has assembled an army from all around Israel. 32,000 men have heard the call. They've heard that Gideon's the new leader of the people and he's going to defend them with their help against the Midianites. He said, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, God is saying. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Wow. God never tests our faith in order to induce failure or to beat us down. Before asking Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal, the Lord allowed Gideon to see this theophany. The angel of the Lord appears representing the Lord himself. He touched Gideon's offering, showing that the Lord was really speaking. And he tests our faith in order to encourage and strengthen us for the bigger test that is coming, the next test that's always on its way. So Gideon passed this first faith test when he tore down those altars. Before putting Gideon to the next faith test, the Lord allowed himself to be tested. Do you know that sometimes God does that? This is where the, the issue of Gideon's fleece comes into play. Gideon still wasn't sure that this was the Lord who was speaking to him. So he says, Lord, I want you to do something. I'm going to lay down a wool fleece that came from shearing the sheep, and I'm going to put it on the ground. And this is what I want to have happen tonight. When I go to, to bed, I'm going to lay this on the ground. And what I want to have happen is in the morning when I wake up, the fleece will be dry even though all the ground around it is soaked with dew. Got up the next morning, picked up the fleece and go, wow, this is dry. And felt around and everything else around it was wet. But he came back to God again and he said, yeah, one more test, God, if, you, if that's okay with you. Tonight I'm going to lay out the fleece again. And this time I want the fleece to be soaked with dew, but the, dry, the ground all around it dry. And if you do this, I will know that this is you who are calling me. Now why is he doing this? He's a farmer, not a military leader. He's, he's got 32,000 men who are gathering together for him to lead them into battle, and he's never led anybody into battle. He wants to know that he didn't just have a bad breakfast the day before, and somehow th this has uh, created a hallucination. He wants to know that the God of the universe is speaking to him and leading him into battle. He gets up the next morning, the, dry, the ground all around the fleece is dry, and he picks up the fleece and he starts to squeeze it, and he filled a bowl of, with the water from the dew that soaked that fleece. And then he said, now I know. Now I know that, that this is God. So God allowed himself to be tested before he brought the next faith test into Gideon's life. The second faith test came as Gideon summoned Israel's men for battle the Midianite army was large and tested. They had 135,000 men who were gathered against Israel on Israel's borders. Knowing that the Lord was with them, Gideon put out the call. He, he gathered 32,000 men from all around Israel, all the different tribes. And then the Lord said, Gideon, 
That's too many. They will think that they did this themselves. So Gideon was instructed to tell the men that anyone who was afraid should go home. All right, I never fought in the army. How many of you fought at some point? You were a soldier or you were in the military? Just curious. Did anybody ever, commander, ever step in front of your group and say, everybody who's afraid, go home? I mean, this is the most unusual military leadership strategy in the history of the world. That day, 22,000 men left. They went home, leaving only 10,000 to go against 135,000 Midianites. And God told Gideon, you still have too many men. What would any normal commander think? I probably would have responded to God, are you kidding? Do you know what you're doing? But Gideon knew that the Lord had burned up that offering, that the Lord had filled that fleece with dew while the ground around it was dry, and that the Lord had silenced all the people who were angry when he tore down the idols. And so Gideon faced a third faith test by shrinking his army again. The Lord told him to let every man who, to take, to take the men down to the river and let every man who put his face in the water to take a drink to set them aside and have them go back to their tents. Those who would scoop down and, and take some water and then lap it out of their hands, he said, that's, that's the group you're going to work with. 9,700 out of the 10,000 put their faces in the river to drink the water. He said, fine, go back to your tents. And only 300 then were left. It's as if the Lord was saying to Gideon, okay, now the Goldilocks factor sets in. This is just right. But do you know what Gideon had going for him? He remembered that the Lord had said one most important thing. I will be with you. Sometimes we get this so wrong. We think that the Lord is with us when everything is going right. We're blessed in that moment. It's, it's easy in that moment. But the Lord was testing Gideon to bring him to the place where he would see the Lord fight the people's battles for them. Times of testing are designed by God to bring us to greater faith. He allows them into our lives for a reason most of the time. And then Gideon is brought to a fourth test. During the night, the Lord speaks to Gideon and he says, Take your servant and the two of you, just the two of you, sneak down and go into the Midianite camp. Now, militarily, this is a really dumb strategy. Imagine if the person who's in charge of the entire battle plan goes behind the enemy lines and he gets captured. There's no battle that's going to happen the next day. But Gideon says, all right, Lord, another faith test. He and his servant, they sneak down into the Midianite camp and they overhear as they get up close to a tent of some of the Midianites, one of the soldiers telling another one about the, a dream that he had. And then the second soldier interprets his dream and he says, this can only be the sword of Gideon and it must be that the Lord has given us into the hands of Gideon. Gideon goes back up to the camp and he's ready to go. And this time there's no more doubt. There are no more faith tests that are coming. He's not going to ask the Lord about fleeces or anything else. And this faith test caused Gideon to act boldly. And so Gideon's 300 men crept down to the edge of the Midianite camp. Each one was equipped with a torch 
and the torch was under a clay jar, and then they each had a trumpet. When they dismissed those other 9,700 men, they took their trumpets, and each section of a military group, the commander would have a trumpet. And, and so at Gideon's command, they lifted the, the torches from under those clay jars. They smashed the clay jars so it would make a great noise, and then they blew the trumpets, and it made it sound like there were 300 divisions of soldiers that were coming in against the Midianites in the middle of the night. And then they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And there was such confusion in the darkness that the Midianites were awakened and they started running through each other with their own swords and then running away. And the Midianites were routed. Gideon had to call the rest of the soldiers who were up in their tents to come help them chase the Midianites all through the next day in order to round them up. It's an amazing scenario that we get here. A moment ago, we sang a song, and one of the lines in the song was, it's so much better your way. I would imagine if Gideon was hearing us sing that song this morning, he would have been singing from the top of his lungs and saying, you have no idea how much better it is when you allow God to have his way. He is able to fight our battles for us. Which leads to my last point. God always gives us a choice. He always gives us a choice. Whether we will follow His lead and His ways or whether we will try to do things our ways, whether we will choose to live by faith or continue to drift with the culture around us. Gideon was part of a culture that was in extreme drift toward the idle practices of the nations until God woke him up that day. Dennis Lee, a a pastor in Nevada who's writing influence some of the way that I developed this message, makes this final point that God gives us a choice whether we will live by faith or continue to drift with the culture. And so Gideon starts with little faith in the midst of great cultural drift, but God developed that faith and strengthened it and tested it. And he showed Gideon that the Lord works with power when we get rid of the idols of our lives and we face our battles his way. Today we see many Christians simply adopting the shifting values of our culture and trying to fit Jesus in along the way. The Lord is always calling us to seek Him in His ways first. The question is, will we run and hide or will we operate in faith? We're barking up the wrong tree if we rail against the culture and expect God to fix it while we do nothing. God always starts by working on us long before He changes the culture. He calls us to tear down our idols to serve Him first and only. He gives us faith tests along the way to strengthen and purify our faith. And he asks us to operate his way. Not through political power, a monetary war chess, but when God leads his people to great victories, there are great breakthroughs in life that come. And he will make sure that everyone knows that it was by his power. So here's my question as we try to apply this to our times today. Are there still idols in your life that God wants you to tear down? If you and I are holding on to idols, and we can easily do that, we can turn anything into an idol. God is routinely against that process. And God often doesn't work in us the way He longs to work in us until we tear those idols down first. Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor in New York City, says an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's time to tear that idol down. It's time to ask the Lord to work in you. The question is, 
Are we ready to really let Him work in us and to ruthlessly root out everything that goes against His plan? When the Lord is ready to use us to change the world, He will work on the hearts of His people first. I'd like to do something different today. I don't know if anybody will respond to this or not, but if there's something that you realize that God wants to root out of your life, I'm going to invite people to come forward, and we're going to kneel right here, and we're going to pray and ask God to work in us in order that He can change His culture. If you're not comfortable doing that, that's fine, but if God is moving in your heart to give something over to Him, I'm going to ask you to come forward, and we'll have our final prayer here in just a moment. Anybody? God moving you? Father God, only you know exactly what's in the hearts of each and every friend who's here right now. But I ask that you would not only clean us up from the inside, but you'd remove whatever it is that has such a hold on our hearts, whether it's our pride, whether it's our view of ourselves, whether it's something that we've been fighting and battling for years, years and years. We give it over to you. We ask that you would take the throne in the center of our lives, and that you would have first place in all that we do, in all that we say, and that you would release us from this battle, that you would win the victory that's going on inside of us. And as you change us, then have your way in how you would have us to change some small corner of this world. Lord, I pray for each of these friends here who've had the courage to, to, to sense your call and your leading and to kneel before you. We gather with Christians around the world today who are kneeling before you, asking you to, to bring change in this world, and we know that you won't do that until you change us. Change my heart, my mind, change our hearts, our minds. Clean them up. Forgive us for our sins. Allow us to have a fresh sense of your wind, the wind of your spirit that renews and revives. We pray this in Jesus' name.